welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 1211 First Avenue North on the third floor. So imagine it's about 7 o'clock at night. You have just finished eating dinner. You're starting to clean up. You're starting to sort of uh, finish whatever it is you have before you start sort of the relaxing part of the night. You are winding down your day, and a knock comes to your door. So you walk to the door and answer it, and there at the door you find someone in his mid-thirties, in good shape, in a black suit. And he says this to you. I think we both know why I'm here. It's time to go. I think we both know what you did. I have to take you in. What would you do? What what immediately pops into your mind? Uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, the guy that wrote uh, Sherlock Holmes, not the one with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, or the one with Lucy Liu, uh, neither one of those. Uh, no, no, the, the real one, the old one. Uh, he uh, played a trick very similar to this on all of his friends in London. This was back in the days of telegrams, which were like text messages, but slower. Um, and he sent a telegram uh, to a bunch of his friends. And the telegram simply read this. All has been revealed, flee town. Did not sign it. That's all he said. And do you know what all of his friends did? They got up and scattered out of London. They were all gone. What's going on with this? What's going on with this idea that if somebody shows up at our door and says, I know what you did. All of us sort of have that thing in the back of the, our mind that we go, well, I hope, it, I hope it's not that thing. I hope, I, hope it's not, I hope it's not that secret. What these questions, what Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's uh, telegram, what the question of the guy showing up at your door saying, I know what you did, what that reveals about all of us, whether we are a Christian or not, no matter what sort of religion we hold to, all of us have this thing where we have guilt. Whether we like it or not, whether we have a a moral system, whether we have a belief about morality that is strong or not, we all have this guilt that plagues us. And the question is, what do we do with that? That thing that that your mind fills the box with, what do you do with that guilt? Where there's... There's a couple of things that we do with our guilt. And this is, this is true for those of us who are Christians. This is true for those of us who are not Christians. For some of us, the way that we deal, deal with our guilt is by ignoring it. Is by pretending it doesn't exist. Every time that feeling sort of bubbles up, every time that idea of guilt sort of begins to well up inside of us, we just sort of tamp it down and say, no, no, I'm not thinking about that, not dealing, go away and we tamp it down. Or we sort of explain it away, right? Well, you know, 
that's, that, that my guilty conscience just comes from the fact that I was raised a certain way, and I don't, I don't even believe the way I was raised anymore, so we're, ju- we're just going to move on from that. We, we explain, you know what, that's just the remnants of a moral system that my parents believed, but I, I, I don't believe that no more. And so some of us just sort of try to, try to push the guilt away, either by explaining it or ignoring it. For others of us, and this is probably one of the more common responses, whenever that idea of guilt wells up inside of us, we have this compulsion to balance the ledger. I know that I did this wrong, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do some good stuff to make up for it. I'm going to do some... You know what? I, I was a terrible person. I'm going to do nice things to make up for it. For those of you guys who are in relationships, you never do this. I know that you never do this because I never do this, right? I never get into an argument with my wife, know that I was in the wrong, feel guilty, and then decide to start cleaning some part of the house. I've never done that, so I'm sure you've never done that. And whether it's in something silly like that, like something like silly like an argument, or something more significant, many of us, when we're faced with these feelings of guilt, Try to do things that will balance out the scales, balance out our ledger. Uh, and the last response to guilt that many of us have is we, we start to feel guilty over something that we've done. Uh, and that, that guilt wells up inside of us. And to get rid of it, here's what we do. We look around and we go, at least I'm not that guy. Yes. Yes, I did some wrong things. Yes, I was wrong. But I'm not. And we find somebody who's worse than us and go, as long as I'm not that person, I'm fine. The problem with all of these, the problem with explaining away our guilt or ignoring it, the problem with trying to balance the ledger, the problem with comparing ourselves to others, is that none of these things actually deal with our guilt. All of these methods of dealing with our guilt are nothing more than Febreze. Right? You have a terrible smell in your house. Instead of finding the source of the terrible smell, five good squirts, and everything is fine. What's the problem? Two hours later, the smell is worse. And so then we're stuck in the Febreze cycle. This is, this is something that every guy in a dorm has gone through. We'll all say it was our roommate's problem, not ours. But we just keep Febrezing more, never actually getting down to the core of the problem. And yet, when we're honest with ourselves, Christian or not, we all have this guilt inside of us. Well, here's where Christianity comes in. This morning, we're talking about the phrase in the Apostles' Creed. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. And forgiveness is so essential to the message of Christianity that it makes it into the Creed. The people who wrote the Creed could have included any number of other ideas, doctrines, principles from Christianity. And yet, in the sort of short list, in the sort of cliffs notes of Christianity, the bare bones minimum of what it means to be a Christian, one of those things is the forgiveness of sins. That is because it is that 
essential to what we believe as Christians. But one of the things that where it's placed in the creed shows us is that this forgiveness of sins is not just about us and God. It's also about one another. You see, it's easy for us to think, okay, yes, I'm forgiven, I need to receive forgiveness, but not see the way that this affects our relationships. But notice that it doesn't place the forgiveness of sins right next to where it talks about Jesus. It places it right next to where it talks about the church. It places it right next to the communion of saints, the connection we all have to one another. And so here's what I want to do this morning. I want to show you from one of Jesus' parables that you and I underestimate our need for forgiveness and our need to show it to others. We underestimate our need for forgiveness and the need that we have to show forgiveness to others. So what we're going to do is, I'm going to read a parable from Matthew 18, and I'm going to invite all of you to stand with me as I read it. So if you would, please stand. Uh, If you'd like to read along, um, you can have, if you have a Bible with you, that's great. It will be on the screen. It's also in the app or any number of other places uh, that you can find it. So I'm going to read Matthew 18, and I'm going to start at verse 21. It says this, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported it to their master, all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago, but intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So on its face, this parable is fairly easy to understand. The the details of it are pretty clear. It reads a little bit like one of Aesop's fables. You know, sort of, once upon a time there was a king, 
And a guy came to the king, and the king decides that he's going to settle up all of his debts. He's going to sort of settle up all of his accounts and see where the kingdom stands, see where the money is at. And so he starts calling in servants. And one servant comes in, and that servant owes him 10,000 talents. Now, this is sort of a little bit lost on us, right? Because we measure money in dollars, right? And in the ancient Near East, the way that they uh, measured money was not necessarily simply in dollars and and coinage, uh, but was actually in increments of a day's labor. And so there's this uh, professor out in California who sort of did all the math, right? They did the math. Right? And so the equivalent of what this guy owed the king was roughly $7 billion. Right? It was something like, like 10,000 years worth of like, day labor. It was, it was an insane amount of money. And so he calls him in and says, Hey buddy, $7 billion. Pay me back. Now this begs all sorts of questions. Right? Namely... What did you do to put yourself $7 billion into debt? Unfortunately, we don't know. I can't imagine how somebody would rack up that much money. But the guy falls on his knees. Why? Because he doesn't have $7 billion to pay the king back. He just doesn't have it. And so the king says, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to throw you into debtor's prison. We're going to sell you and your wife and your family as slaves. We're going to sell everything you own. And you're still going to owe me $6.99 billion. This is an absolutely unpayable sum of money. And yet what happens? The man falls on his knees and says, please... Uh, please, uh, if you would just, just please give me time, I'll pay it back. Now, what do we all know about that? Could this guy ever pay back the seven billion dollar debt? No. No, he couldn't. First of all, because clearly he's the kind of guy that can't manage money, because he's the kind of guy that runs up seven billion dollars in debt. What's interesting, though, is what we see in this first interaction. The first thing that we see is that forgiveness is always costly to somebody. When the king forgives $7 billion of debt to the servant, he does it quickly. He does it easily. He says, I forgive you of this debt that you owe me. But does it cost someone something? Absolutely. It costs that king $7 billion. Can you imagine if there was sort of the news media, right, not commenting on any sort of politics? Let's just say the the cycle of media that we have today if this had happened back then, right? Dumb king makes deficit $7 billion worse. Right? This is bad PR, and the king has to wear it. Right? In order to forgive this servant of $7 billion, the king has to forego the $7 billion that's owed to him. Forgiveness always costs somebody something. 
the other thing we see in this sort of first interaction of the story is a realistic picture of what our sin cost us. You see, we often talk here at City Church about the ways that we are broken and messed up. Or to talk about what we thought about before. Those things that our mind went to when we talked about the guy coming to our door and saying, I know what you did. It's interesting that this idea, when it comes to forgiveness, the Bible often talks about this in economic terms. In fact, when Paul is explaining this to the church at Rome, he says it this way, the wage of our sin, of our brokenness, of the way that we treat others, of the way that we are self-righteous, of the ways that we are unkind to people around us, of the ways that we participate in systemic things that are sinful, and the ways all of this is going on, the wages of that is death. Which is roughly seven billion dollars. And when it comes to forgiveness... In order for us to experience real forgiveness, we have to admit that we have real debt. You guys have all been on the other end of a half-hearted apology, haven't you? I'm not saying any of you have given a half-hearted apology. I'm just saying that you've been on the receiving end of, sorry that that happened to you. Have you ever heard somebody apologize, right, for something they did to you and they apologize, sorry that that happened to you? You can't forgive somebody for that. You can't forgive somebody for something that just incidentally happened to you. When it comes to forgiveness, in order for us to truly receive forgiveness, we have to actually admit that there is wrongdoing and debt created by our actions. We have to say to another person, I'm sorry I hurt you. I'm sorry that my actions caused you pain. I'm sorry that what I did took from you. And unless we're really open and honest to admit where our guilt comes from and what it is, we'll never receive real forgiveness. So the story goes on. This man walks out of the king's courtroom probably feeling like a million bucks or seven billion bucks to be more specific. He has just had this entire debt lifted off of his shoulders. But as fate would have it, he runs into one of his fellow servants and that fellow servant owes him a hundred denarii. If seven billion dollars is what he owed the king, this guy owed him about ten grand. Now, ten grand is no chump change. I would, I'd take ten grand if someone gave it to me. But when compared to seven billion dollars, it is wildly insignificant. And so what happens? He sees this guy and says, Hey, where's my money? And the Bible literally says he starts to choke the guy out over the money. And then he takes him down to jail. And the guy, here's what's interesting. The guy falls to his knees. What had the other servant just done? Fallen to his knees. And he says, please give me more time and I will repay you. The same words the unjust servant had just used 
but the unjust servant will have none of it. Takes this guy down to jail, has him put in the debtor's prison, and says, until you find a way to pay me back, you're here in jail. And so, all of a sudden, this servant we start to call the unjust servant. And when we read this story, if I just read the middle part of the story, that there was a servant who was owed $10,000, and he wanted it back, we would all sort of sympathize with that guy, right? If someone owed you $10,000, would you want them to repay you? Yes, you probably would. You see, forgiveness is always costly, but it also subverts our sense of justice. You see, because you and I want everyone else to live in a world of justice, and we want ourselves to be able to live in a world of mercy. I want justice for you guys. I want mercy for me. You see, this servant that we're talking about here is more like us than we care to admit. Because when we do stuff wrong, we want to be able to say, mercy, please, I will repay, please forgive me. But when somebody turns around and wrongs us, throw the book at them. Think about your driving patterns, right? When, when you do a terrible job merging onto 275, what do you do? Sorry, sorry, mercy, forgive me. It's, when somebody else cuts you off doing a terrible job merging onto 275, what do you do? You want to throw the book at them. You, you, there is a terrible driver out here on 275. You need to dispatch somebody right now. They must be drunk. They can't drive, right? When it comes to ourselves, we want mercy. When it comes to everyone else, we want justice. We don't like it when we work hard and someone else gets the benefits of it. We don't like it when we try so hard, Christian, to be a good person, and then we see somebody who doesn't try, who throws themselves on the mercy of God and says, Jesus, forgive me. That low-key bothers us. We don't like it when the undeserving succeed. When the unjust receive mercy. We don't like it when other people receive mercy because we want everyone else to get justice. See, what the real problem is, is that you and I are only okay with mercy when it doesn't cost us anything. Because when mercy starts to cost me something, when forgiveness starts to cost me, me something, I get real uncomfortable with it. I'm totally okay when forgiving you doesn't matter. When somebody does something and says, hey, will you forgive me? I did this to you the other day. And I say, well, I don't even remember. Yeah, you're forgiven. 
But when somebody's wronged me, when somebody has hurt me, truly, and then asks for forgiveness, you see, we're much more like this unjust servant than we want to admit. And so what happens? The little birds see this all happen. They go back to the king and they tell him what happened. They tell him, hey, you know that guy that you just forgave $7 billion in debt? He's out there being a jerk to somebody over ten grand." And the king calls him in and is like, what's going on? You just received a ton of mercy and now you're out there as the caped crusader of justice? What are you doing? And the guy sort of has nothing to say for himself. And the king decides that he's going to throw him in jail until he repays his $7 billion. And then Jesus ends with this. If you will not forgive your brothers, I'm not going to forgive you. Now, that honestly strikes us as odd, doesn't it? That God puts any sort of conditions on what he has to say. So what did Jesus mean? What did Jesus mean when the Master said, if we're not forgiving, we won't be forgiven? Well, one of the things he's showing us is that forgiveness of one another is is one of the marks of true Christianity. If we truly are Christian, if we truly do believe what we say we believe, we're going to be people who are forgiving of others. The other thing that he's showing us is that the grace of Jesus, the mercy and forgiveness of Jesus, when we truly believe it, will begin to change our lives. We'll begin to change what it is that we do. We'll begin to change our hearts. So that all of a sudden, because we know how deeply we have been forgiven, we will be forgiving of others. When we see what great debt has been paid on our behalf, we are more willing to forgive others for their debt. But you see, the way that it works is, until we are willing to admit where we have fallen short, until we're willing to admit where we have not met the bar, where we're in need of forgiveness, we won't actually be forgiven to others. It's interesting that Jesus talks about this forgiveness in terms of economics. Because... When he was on the cross, one of the last things that Jesus said is, It is finished. Now for us, it is finished is something that we think about when we think about the cross, if we've been in the church for any amount of time. But when the people in Jesus' day would have heard that, it was, it was one word, and I won't bore you with the word, but it was one word, and it was the kind of word that you would put on a rubber stamp. It would be like somebody in an accounting office when a bill comes in that is paid, you stamp that with the rubber stamp, paid in full. No debt remains. When Jesus says it is finished on the cross, he's using that same word that would have been used in ports throughout the Mediterranean. When somebody paid their bill, it is finished. It is paid for It is done. And the reason he uses that is because when Jesus died on the cross, what he did was truly secure forgiveness for you and for me. 
for all of the ways that we are self-righteous and want other people to get justice. For all the ways that we apply a different ruler to people around us than we do to ourselves. For all the ways that we fail to forgive people. Jesus says, paid in full. It is finished. The debt is taken away. The wages that we owed, the seven billion moral credit, or debit I should say, that we have accrued, has been paid in full. And so as we look to Jesus, what happens is, the more honest we are willing to be with ourselves, the more honest we're able to look at that guilt and say, I have done things. I am not okay. I am broken and messed up. The more we're able to be genuine about those things, the more we're able to experience Jesus' forgiveness. The more we're able to see that despite the fact that we are broken and messed up, because of the cross, because of that stamp and the red blood of Jesus, it is finished. We are fully accepted, fully forgiven by God. And what happens is, that begins to change us. And so as we remember what the creed says, when it says we believe in the forgiveness of sins, it's a call for us to examine our own hearts. A call for us to ask the question, where am I ignoring my guilt? Where am I tamping it down, covering over it, and ignoring it? That's a place where we have the opportunity to confess and receive the mercy of Jesus. Where am I wishing that mercy was withheld on others? Where am I acting self-righteously? Where am I looking at those people? And finally, where am I holding back forgiveness? Where am I not willing to 